Uh, let me tell you a little bit about me. And you say, well, do you have a text? Yes, my text is Romans eight twenty eight. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. And to those who are the called according to his purpose. That's one of the mis- most misunderstood verses in all the Bible. Many people believe that, by, that verse says that everything that happens to you is good. That's not true. Everything that happens to us is not good. But everything that happens to us, whether good, bad, or indifferent, is an ingredient that God wants to use in your life and my life to bring about a good result. Amen. That's the text. To tell you a little bit about me, my name, as I told you, was Rudy Holland. I was raised in a, in a Christian home. Mom and Dad loved the Lord. When I was 13 years of age, we moved to Lynchburg, Virginia. We were free will Baptists. There was no such animal as a free will Baptist church in the, in the city of Lynchburg. When we moved there, we began to look for a church. My mom and dad worked at General Electric, and some people at General Electric invited them to go to a church that was just getting started good, pastored by a young man who wasn't even married at the time, and his name was Jerry Falwell. And so we became a part of the Thomas Road Baptist Church. My dad and mom, and, and uh, they joined the church, and my sisters, and they got active, and I was lost as a goose in a cane patch and had no interest in the things of God. But they were serving the Lord, and when I was 18 years of age and a senior in high school, the, uh, the church had a revival when, on a Thursday night, just like tonight. I came home from school. My mother began to beg me to go to, uh, go to revival. She said, Dad, I'm going to have some special music and a lot of music, and uh, there's a choir coming in from Danville, Virginia, and there's a quartet coming from Texas and all this kind of stuff. And uh, the preacher's really unusual. And finally, she talked me into going with her to church, and I did that night, and my friends were not there. Unusual, but I sat with my family that night, and that night the preacher preached, and though I did not pay attention, God did, and he paid attention to me, and great conviction came into my heart. And during the invitation time, I stood holding on to the back of a pew to determine I was not going to step out and go forward. And my mother, with tears raining down her face, leaned over, laid her hand on mine, and said, Son, if you'll go, I'll go with you. And I stepped out that night, and she followed me down the aisle, and the old deacon by the name of Mr. Mayberry met me at the altar, went into the counseling room. I knelt beside him. I knew the verses. My, my mom and dad had shared the gospel with me many times, and so had Dr. Falwell, who we, at that time, lived three doors down from. And I, but I, that night, I invited the Lord Jesus into my life. And as I prayed and asked the Lord to save me, I could feel my mother's tears falling on the back of my neck. I got up and went outside, and... Dr. Falwell recognized the fact that I had trusted Christ. By the way, that evangelist was an unusual evangelist, one of the most unusual evangelists in the world. His name was Lester Roloff. And so I was saved under Brother Roloff's ministry. I mean, if you may, may, may know of his ministry. I was having my life all planned and laid out for me. I, I was going to go into the restaurant business. I worked in, at the Holiday Inn in, in Lynchburg, Virginia. As, 18 year, as an 18-year-old, I was kitchen manager. I cooked all the steaks. I did all the, uh, cut all the meat. I did all of that. I was trained to do all of that by the time I was 18. My claim to fame, folks, is I cooked for Johnny Cash one night. He came in and asked for a, a, a filet mignon Pittsburgh. And so uh, Wilma, the waitress, came by and she said, Johnny Cash is out there. I said, yeah, I saw that. She said, he wants a Pittsburgh filet mignon. I said, all right. She said, do you know what that is? I said, I ain't got a clue. And uh, she, I said, but I'll find out. So I went and found the, the manager, Jack Quigg. He was in Pennsylvania. He said he wants it to look like a piece of coal on the, uh, uh, all over, just as black as it could be, charred about a quarter of an inch. But in the middle of it, he wants it to be cold, red, raw. He said, can you do it? I said, I can do it. 
So I went and I turned those uh, burners up and got them real hot, dipped that filet in, the, in some grease and uh, some oil and put it on and hit it. Woo! And it just flamed up. I held it with tongs at the top and I got it charred real good and got it black. Oh, just the way he, he, uh, he had described. Put it on toast points and put it on the plate and sent it out. Wilma said, I'm not serving that. You burn it. I said, serve it. It's Pittsburgh. And so she took it out. And he ate it. And uh, she came back and she said, Johnny Cash wants to see you. My heart dropped. I said, oh, Lord. He's going to nail my hide for burning his steak. So I go walking out there and I said, yes, sir, Mr. Cash. He said, sonny boy. <laughs> Did you cook that filet? I said, I did. He said, it's the best one I've had since I left Pittsburgh. Gave me a $10 tip, and the, and the steak only cost $9.99. I tell people I've been walking the line ever since. I mean, I mean, uh, there you uh, But anyway, I had all my life planned. But my pastor came to me after I got saved and said, would you consider going to Bible college? I said, well, I don't even know what, where one is. He said, well, I want you to go to Tennessee Temple. I said, well, I'll pray about it. And so I did. And I went to Tennessee Temple. And the first day I was there, I was standing in the registration line behind a, uh, a young lady. Her last name was Hopper. I, my name's Holland. And she was a cute little girl. And I decided, shoot, man, I might well see if I can get a date while I'm here. And so I began to talk to her. And I said, would you like to go to church Sunday? She said, well, I would, but I, I've already got a date. About that time, her roommate walked up. Her name was Doris. And I, she was cute, too. I said, I think I'll ask her. And she didn't. So I said, hey, you want to go to church Sunday night? She said, yeah. So we went to church together. That's the only kind of dating you could do back then at Tennessee Temple. And uh, couldn't go do anything else to go to church. And so we went to church. That, and so Monday morning, I, I was standing standing there on the third floor of the temple building with my roommate, Dan Manley, and uh, uh, Doris was coming over to go to work in the registrar's office where she worked. It was in the first floor of the building that we lived in, and uh, I, I said, hey, Dan, you know who that is? He said, yeah, that's Doris Davis. I said, yeah, I'm going to marry her. He said, you're crazy. You've been out with her one time to church, and you're talking about marrying her. I said, well, crazy or not, I'm going to marry her. And that became the joke of the dorm until two years later, <laughs> and I married her. And we stayed married for 54 years. And this past February, the Lord took her home to be with him and left me alone for the first time in 54 years. God gave us two wonderful children. We found out we were going to have our first child. And she said, I want you to pray with me, honey. We, we have, we'll, have a, we'll have a little boy. I said, well, I'm praying for a little girl. She said, no, no, you, you, we got a lot of young people here. Y'all don't understand this sermon. Because, see, you, back in those days, you didn't know what you were going to get until they got here. <laughs> and whenever they did come, the husband was put in a little room. You didn't even know what it was until they finally got around to come and telling you after, 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 after the child was born. But anyway, she said, I'm praying for a little boy. I said, I'm praying for a little girl. And so nine months later, sure enough, we went, the baby came. And it was a little girl. We know who had the power. Amen. <laughs> but two years after that, the Lord gave us the little boy that she so wanted. We named him Paul. Actually, Paul Rudolph Holland II, after my father. He went by Paul. Paul was an unusual little boy. He, uh, he was very, very, very brilliant. There was a man who, matter of fact, I did his funeral here three, four years ago over in Cummins. We used to come to our house, and at five years of age, Paul and him played chess. He was very, Paul was very intelligent. And uh, the educators told us he'd have to have special classes and challenges because of his intellect. I tell people he got his 
his intelligence from his mother. She graduated magna cum laude. I graduated laude hal cum, but I did graduate. Paul was not only a very brilliant little fellow, but he also was a very spiritually minded little fellow. Remember one day my wife called me at the office and she said, Paul just came up and said he just got saved. I said, what? She said, yeah, he said he was downstairs. He'd been listening to you preach on Sunday morning. Been listening to what we'd be talking about in, in family devotions. And he realized that he knew he was a sinner and he believed that Jesus died on the cross for him. So he got on his knees and he asked Jesus to forgive him of his sins and to come into his life and to save him. And he wanted to just come up and tell me he just got saved. That's pretty good testimony. Amen. I said, well, don't say anything to him. Let me see what he says to me. And that night at dinner, he told me the same thing. I never said anything about joining the church or being baptized. But the next Sunday morning, for the invitation time, here he came right down the aisle. And I stepped down to greet him. He didn't speak to me. He went over to my associate and he said, I got saved this week. I need to be baptized. I want to join the church. A few weeks later, I baptized him. Wasn't too long after that, a man named Marshall St. Clair was teasing with him, and he said, Paul, what are you going to do when you grow up? He said, well, I want to be a preacher. Marshall said, well, you're going to be a preacher. Where are you going to preach? He said, well, preach here at the church. Marshall said, well, what about your dad? He said, ah, he'll be dead by then. <laughs> Marshall said, do you have any sermons? He said, don't need any. Dad's got hundreds of them. <laughs> I tell you all that just so you can kind of get an idea of what kind of little boy our, our Paul was. It wasn't long after that, all of those things I just talked to you about, about six, eight months later, Paul began to have some physical problems. We took him to the doctor, and for the sake of time, I'll just shorten it. He was diagnosed with a brain tumor. He went in and had his first surgery. It was a benign growth, a craniofringioma. They were able to get about 85, 90% of it, and, but it affected his optic nerves, and he didn't have any peripheral visions. But really, the main thing was it did damage to his pituitary glands, and he had to be placed on synthetic hormone, every hormone of the body he took synthetically. He had to measure every drop of water that went into his body, and every drop that came out. He was so smart, though, he was able to do that and measure the specific gravity of his urine and, and uh, give himself the medication as he needed it within just a matter of a few weeks. The doctors told us it wouldn't grow back, and the tumor would not grow back, Maybe never, but at least for 10, 12 years, but it grew back in 11 months. This time when they went in, Dr. Stevens came out and he looked at me and he said, he's got a year or less. We weren't satisfied with that. We began to look for other possibilities of treatment, found out that there was experimental treatment at Boston's Children and Paul was number 29 to experience that and it did kill the tumors, calcified it, but it left two tumors, uh, two, uh, two cysts. After he got out of the hospital, we went on vacation, and those cysts ruptured and drained down on the left hemisphere of his brain. He was in a coma for 32 days at University of Virginia Hospital, came home and was in the hospital another 30 days in a coma. We finally brought him home. Our little boy was less than an infant. We had to take ice and teach him how to smile. He didn't know night from day. He finally learned who we were, Mama, Daddy, Angie, a few other words, he could quote John 3.16, though. He loved souls. He used to go on visitation, bus visitation, every Saturday. And the first sentence that he ever said was he looked through the bars of his hospital bed at his nurse. I got up that morning. She was sitting there crying. And I said, Iris, there's something wrong. She said, no. Paul just said his first full sentence. I said, what did he say? 
She said he looked through those bars and said, are you saved? I've thought about a lot. That tumor took away a lot, but it couldn't take away what the Lord Jesus had done in his little heart. It was during that time that I asked the Lord something. I said, Lord, what is it you want me to learn? I don't want to miss what you, what you have for me. You see, most of you I do not know in this, in this room tonight. But I can tell you something about every one of you. Every one of you, you've either been through a tragedy, you're going through a tragedy right now. Or if Jesus tarries his coming, you'll face one in the days to come. Tragedy is not always the, Ill, always the illness of a child. It's not always the death of a child. It's not even always the illness in your own body, but it could be. It can be a broken relationship. It can be a disappointment of all call measure. It can be an untimely death of a spouse or a loved one. You see, I don't know what you're going through. Maybe something really sort of secret. But in the darkness of the night and quietness of the, of the evenings, you lay alone and you remember that abuse, that mistreatment, that violation. And it eats at you, but you never say anything. But all of us have been through, are going through, or will go through a tragedy. If during that time I was traveling to speak to a bunch of preachers in Richmond, Virginia, that God laid on my heart five things. And for whatever time I have left, which is about 20, about 20 minutes, I want to share with you those five things. You say that God taught you. <laughs> I wish I could say yes. That God is teaching me. Because there are things that I began to learn. Yes, and I identified, but there are things that I'm still learning. Maybe they'll help you to get over what you've been through, get you through what you're going through, or maybe get you ready for what you may have to go through. Let me give them to you. First of all, I have learned of God's unfailing grace. The grace of my God is sufficient. In the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter number 12, I don't have time to read it, and I don't have time to give you an exposition of the text. Sometimes I do that. But we had the occasion of the Apostle Paul writing, and he says in verse number one, it is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. If you go on down and keep reading through those verses, you'll know that Paul talks about that 14 years prior to this time, that he knew a man who had been caught up to the third heaven. And he says there that he heard unspeakable words, which is not a lot lawful for a man to utter, verse number four. Every scholar that I know of and every book I've ever read identifies this man that Paul is referring to who was called up to the third heaven 14 years prior to this time is Paul himself. And he's talking about how he was caught up. What he was saying in this verse was God had highly honored him. He had been caught up into the third heaven, heard words unspeakable. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he begins to talk about in verse number seven, unless I should be exalted of a measure through the abundance of the revelations, there are given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. What Paul was saying was, the God who had honored me and allowed me to be caught up to the third heaven now humbles me by giving me a thorn in the flesh. Now, there's a lot of preaching about what that thorn in the flesh was. 
I don't know if I could identify it exactly, but I will say to you without reservation that I believe it was some type of physical infirmity. You say, well, why would you believe that? Well, first of all, his name was changed from Saul to Paul. Paul means little one, a frail one. Secondly, at least on one of his missionary journeys, the apostle Paul traveled with a medical doctor, a man by the name of Dr. Luke. Then when he was writing to the churches in Galatia, he said if it were possible, they would have plucked their eyes out and given them to him. Why would they need his eyes? Probably because he has some type of eye disease and that, that bothered him. Later on, he, the word of God says in the last chapter of, uh, of the book of Galatians that he wrote unto them a large letter in the King James. But in the original, it says he wrote unto them with large letters. Why would he write with them in large letters? Probably because he couldn't see well. Whatever the case... Paul three times comes to the Lord and asks him, you have honored me and allowed me to be caught up to the third heaven. Now you have humbled me with this thorn in the flesh. Would you now bless me and take those, take this thorn in the flesh away? God does not take it away, but God does say, my grace is sufficient for thee. The God who had honored him, the God who had humbled him, said, I'll help you, and the help that I will give you is my grace. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here this evening to tell you that no matter what you're going through, no matter what you've been through, or no matter what you may have to go through in the, uh, in the future, that God has grace to see you through every trial Amen. and every trouble. Every disappointment, yes, and every failure that may come to your life, I've learned of his unfailing grace. You say, you mean unmerited favor? Well, that's the definition we assign to it and is given to the word grace, but I would like to maybe not define it, but describe it. The grace I'm talking about is when you cry until you can cry no more. When you've hurt until you don't think you could hurt anymore. You don't think you can face another day, but some way, somehow the sun rises and you rise. You face the challenges of the day. You go and do what God's given you to do that day. And at the end of the day, you look back and you say, you know, I didn't think I could do it, but I was able to do it and only I could do it because of the unfailing grace of God Amen. to see me through the day. Right. I've learned of an unfailing grace. I've learned of an inexhaustible supply for every need. Several years ago, I sat down with a pen one day. I don't know why I did it, but I did. And began to pen the cost of what, what that had been that I knew that I could, I could honestly put to the, the cost of Paul's illness. Paul required uh, registered nurses with him 24-7. My wife went back to college and got her BSN, so she would be there when we did not have nurses as a nurse. But we had 24-7 nursings with him for years, and after that we had 16 hours a day, and we, we, we chose to take care of him the, the, in the evenings ourselves. Paul was in and out of emergency rooms. Paul had multiple seizures, sometimes as many as 17 seizures a day, grandma seizures, most of them at night. We went 26 years and never slept all night, one night in our home, because we'd have to, one of us would have to be up with Paul. And be sure he came out of the seizures. You start trying to figure out all the medications. He had one medication cost over $2,000 a month. He had other, other hormones he had to have, plus in and out of the, of the intensive care units and in and out of the hospitals, plus all the nursing care. It was several millions of dollars. You say, guess you had good insurance. Not that good. 
You say, well, how'd you pay it? My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Time will not allow me to tell you how many times God has miraculously met the need for us to pay our bills, buy the medicine, pay the nurses. I don't care what you're going through in your life or where you are in your life. I want to tell you, my God can take care of you. He has an inexhaustible supply for every need that you may have in your life. Those of you that go into the mission field, there may be at times when you'll say there's no way and all of a sudden there is a way. And it's because of a way that God made. There'll be a supply that you, you know, that, that'll come in some surprising way, but God will take care of you. Amen. I've learned of his inexhaustible supply for every need. Number three, I've learned that he has an unquestionable purpose. I grew up in small churches before we moved to Lynchburg. And when we moved to Lynchburg, the church ran less than 300. And I had the privilege of being there and watch God grow that church. And, but anyway, those small churches, sometimes those preachers, they were good men. But they weren't trained. And sometimes their theology was not exact on target. I remember hearing, hearing preachers say, well, you know, you ought to never ask, ask God why. He heard preachers say one time, it's a sin to ask God why when you're going through difficult times. After I got some Bible training and learned a little bit of the Word of God, I always want to get those preachers together and ask them one question. Why? <laughs> why is it wrong to ask God why? Job asked God why some 16 times. And God never reprimanded him. Who is our great example? Is it not Jesus the Christ? And yet when he went through the greatest trial and trauma of his life, when he was placed on a Roman cross, hanging between two thieves in the darkness of a thousand midnights, bearing your sin, your sin, your sin, your sin, and my sin in his own body, God pulls the shades of heaven, turns out the light, and there comes a voice from the cross that says, My God! My God! Come on, you can talk. Why hast thou forsaken me? If he who was God yet man and man yet God could ask his father when he was going through a horrible time, why don't you think he understands when you and I say why? Sure he does. You say, well, can you tell me why I've been through what I've been through, what I'm going through, why I'm going through what I'm going through? Well, probably not. But we'd like to give you three suggestions. Sometimes God allows things to come into our lives to conform us to his image. My text was Romans 8.28. And I bet you didn't think I was going to fool with it, but I'm going to give you an explanation of Romans 8.28. Now, it's deep stuff. It's deep theology. So you'll have to listen close. How many of you like homemade biscuits? Real homemade biscuits. Now, you young guys, when your wife tells you she's going to make you homemade biscuits and you hear a noise come from the kitchen that says, boosh, <laughs> they ain't homemade. <laughs> you understand? Did you ever think about how you make homemade biscuits? Make homemade biscuits, you got to have flour. 
When you get home tonight, get your big handful of flour and eat. You say, well, pretty good, choke you to death. I know that, but you've got to have flour to make biscuits. To make good biscuits, you'll, you'll need to have lard. Now, if you get a spoonful of that, you probably won't make it out much tomorrow. But to make good biscuits, you've got to have lard. To make good biscuits, you've got to have buttermilk. Now, there are some poor souls that drink that stuff. I don't know why. I don't like buttermilk. But to make good biscuits, you've got to have buttermilk. A little pinch of salt, a little pinch of baking soda. Take that old dry flour, that old greasy lard, that old bitter buttermilk. That salt and that baking soda. Mix it all together. Knead it up real good. Pinch it off. Roll it out. Pat it down, put it on a grease pan, stick it in the oven about 350 degrees. It'll rise up about this big, brown on the top, brown on the bottom. And if for some crazy reason you were to take that pan out, take one of those biscuits out, open it up, put a slab of butter on it, and set it on top of your head, your tongue slap your brains out trying to get to it. That's Romans 8.28. You say, I don't believe I got that. Let me see if I can help you. God takes the flower of life. God takes the lards of life and the buttermilks of life and the baking sodas and the salts of life. With nail-scarred hands, he mixes it all together, sticks it into the oven of his grace, and brings out a result that's good. You see, what you've been through and what you're going through, what you may have to go through, at the moment, may not seem good. It may seem to be bitter and dry and all the rest. But just give it a while. God may pull a result out. It might shock you. Because it may be that these are ingredients that are happening in your life to conform you, to make you more of what God wants you to be. Sometimes God allows tragedies and to come to our, in our lives to confirm our faith. How could I ever know he was a God of all comfort if my heart was never broken? How could I know he was a God who could supply every need if I never had a need greater than that I could meet myself? See, I've learned more about God in the valleys of life than I ever learned on the mountains. Confirm our faith. Sometimes God allows things to happen to us in our lives to confound an unbelieving world. You see, the world looks at our lives and says, well, they said he loved God and everything's going good. And all of a sudden, everything goes bad and goes south. And they step back and say, well, let's see how, what about his God now? That can be the very opportunity that God uses to touch the life of somebody you've been praying for. And they might get saved. Confound an unbelieving world. Number four. I've learned that God has an unexplainable peace. The peace of my God which passes all understanding. The Apostle Paul said it was my life, my wife's life verse. Let me just give you an illustration of that, may I? Paul had gone into seizures and I'd come out and he was having a problem with electrolyte balances and all the rest. We had taken him to the hospital. He was in the hospital. My wife had stayed two nights with him. So I went over and I said, honey, you need some rest. Why don't you go home? I'm going to stay with him tonight. She went home to get a night's rest and clean up. I stayed the night, and Paul was not doing well at all. His vitals were dropping. 
Now, he, he got all right and he lived years after that, but it didn't look good that night. Early, early in the morning, Dr. Michael Siss come by and he said, Pastor, I need to tell you, Paul's not doing well. I think this could be the day that he dies. My wife came early in the morning and I said, honey, I'm going to go. I did a daily radio broadcast for 16 years from my office. I said, I'm going to go home and get Angie, take her to school, do the broadcast. I told her what Dr. Siska said, and I said, but if anything happens, you call the office. They'll find me those cell phones in those days. And I'll get here as quickly as possible. We prayed, and I kissed her goodbye, and I left. The rainy days were like what I drove in today, except it was cold. I remember getting in the car and starting driving down 581 toward Interstate 81 to where we lived off 581. And all I can think about, this could be the day my boy dies. I began to cry. So much so I couldn't see the road, so I pulled off the side. And I fell across the steering wheel and I prayed this prayer. I started, I said, Lord, if you want to, you can take him home. I'll take his little body and I'll go with him as they go to the cemetery and I'll watch him as they lower him beneath the sod and I'll watch him as they put the sod back in place and I'll stand at the grave and I'll tell the world, you're still God and you're still good and I still love you. I preached right in having extra biblical experiences that, that, that morning. But it seemed to me that the heavenly dove took flight and left heaven, came, took up his abode, fluttered his wings, and my soul there came over me a peace like I'd never known before. You say, have you always had that peace since? No, I've had to ask for it time and time again. But every time I've asked for it, I've received it. And every time I've sought it, I've found it. Because my God has promised me peace in the midst of the storms, an unexplainable peace. And you're going through the hard times and the difficult times. There's peace. Peace. God's peace. Number five. I've learned to expect an unpredictable result. You see, you never know how God's going to use your tragedy. When you go into the midst of it, you don't see it. And then all of a sudden you look back and say, Wow. We sing the song, It Is Well With My Soul. The wife of Horatio Spafford and his girls were making their way to Europe. And through a tragedy, some people say a storm, some say a wreck. I don't really know. It doesn't really matter. But his girls were swept overboard and lost at sea. Horatio Spafford received the word from his wife and boarded the ship and went to join his wife as quickly as possible. But he told the captain of the ship, when we come to the place where my daughters fell off the ship and were lost, you get me. And sure enough, one day, early one morning, the captain came or somebody came and knocked on the door. Mr. Spafford, Mr. Spafford, we're at your place. And he got up and while the boat sailed over the watery graves of his daughter, he wrote the song, It Is Well With My Soul. No tragedy, no song. 1986, around that area, I made my first trip to Israel. My dear friend was there. He was an adjunct professor at what was called the Institute of Holy Land Studies. His name was Dr. Harold Wilmington. I went by to see Dr. Wilmington. And he said, come on, Rudy, I want to show you something. He took me out the back door into a little German cemetery. And there were headstones, Mr. and Mrs. Horatio Spafford. I said, what in the world are they doing here? He said, oh, he said, after they went back home, they sold all of their earthly goods. 
and came to what was in Palestine and started orphanages to reach children with the gospel. They died here. He said, I am told that some of those orphanages are still in existence. No tragedy, no orphanages. No tragedy. No book. No tragedy, no message. Five lessons I learned from tragedy. You see, you never know how God is going to use the tragedy of the trial that you may be going through. My challenge to you, though, is give your hurt, give your tragedy, give it to the Lord. Let God have it. You can't do anything with it. Let God have it. You might be surprised. God might use it to bless many, many others. I close with a final story. My message tonight has not been my usual type of message. I normally am more of an expositional preacher, but testimonial message. Paul had been diagnosed with the, a return of the, of the tumor. He had had the first surgery. He had returned. I called my mom and dad. They live in Lynchburg. A few hours after that, mom and dad came and dad said, son, would you help me? We bought Paul a toy. We want you, I want you to help me put it together. It was some kind of riding toy, big wheel type thing. And we put it together and I went in and got Paul and Paul came out. Tumor had grown back, but he was still functional. He jumped on that went fly, toy, went flying down the driveway, whirled around, coming about halfway back up though. He stopped and grabbed his little head and began to scream, oh my head, oh my head. The motion it caused, the cranial pressure from that tumor to begin to give him great pain. I went and got him and took him to the house and I got to the door and my mom met me. She said, Doris, that's my wife, is on the phone. I'll take care of him, son. I went back and helped my dad clean up. I went in the house and I heard my mother with Paul up in Paul's room. He was vomiting from the cranial pressure. So I started up to check on him. And as I started up the stairs, I heard my little boy do what he did many, many, many times when his head was hurting and when he was so sick. I heard him begin to sing. He always sung the same little song. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. I got to the head of the steps and I didn't go in his room. I went into Angie's room. Fell on my knees. I said, dear Lord, please help me learn what my little boy knows. When my head is hurting, when my heart is broken, when I don't understand, help me remember. Jesus loves me. This I know. For this Bible tells me so. If you forget everything this old man says tonight, will you remember this? When you go through the dark hours of life, when you go through the hard times of life, when you go through the times that you don't really understand, would you remember one thing? Jesus loves you. I know he does. You say, hey, no, because this Bible tells me so. I know probably everybody here tonight knows the Lord Jesus, but maybe there may be one that does not. If you're here and you don't know Christ, you're going to go through the hard times too. Where will you find grace? How will you have your needs met? 
Where will you get your answers? Where will you find peace? My dear friend, if you don't know him tonight, you ought to come to know him. You ought to come and receive him as your Savior. If there was no hell to miss, no heaven to gain, I'd still want to know Jesus. So I'd have a friend that sticketh closer than a brother to go with me to the difficult times of life. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed and no one's looking around. Maybe you're here and your heart's heavy tonight. Maybe you'd just like to come and kneel at the front or if you can't kneel, just sit on the front seat. But you need to come and just tell Jesus, Jesus, I'm hurting tonight. My heart's heavy. Maybe you want to come and say, Lord, I need grace. I need grace. Maybe you need to come and you say, Lord, I've got a great need and I, only you can supply the need. Lord, I, I need the answers to the whys of my life's tragedies. I don't know. But if God has spoken to you, will you come? Will you come? Will you do now what you, you'll be glad you did after you, you bring that burden to the Lord? I'm going to wait just a moment. The girls are going to begin to sing. Will you come? You say, we're not standing. You don't need to stand. Get up and come. What about it? Will you come? Are they saying, you come? Spirit of God wooing. Oh, do now what you'll be glad you did. You need to come. Come on. Yes, he is. Yes, you can. You can always run to Jesus. Yes, you can. God bless you, Pastor. God bless you. God bless you. You know, God understands every circumstance of our life. You say, well, you don't know what I'm going through. No, you don't know all that I've been through. 
February. One Saturday morning, my wife woke up and passed out. And the next morning, she was with Jesus. 54 years we lived together. I went to Louisiana to preach and <laughs> went into the motel room, passed out and lay unconscious for three hours on the floor. Wound up in the hospital. Just recently had a procedure to hopefully keep that from ever happening again. I'm not complaining. I'm just reporting through it all. Through it all. Through it all. I've learned of his unfailing grace. I've learned that he has an inexhaustible supply for every need. When my wife died, we had to have two funerals. We had the funeral in Florida, then we had to fly our body to North Carolina. I had the funeral, <laughs> two funeral home calls, and I can go on. God met needs. He always does. I've said, why God? Why? Why? She was my, she was my prayer partner. Why? Why not take me? Why her? Beautiful woman. Great Christian. And God said, well, I might want to use that to make you a little more like me, son. Could be I'm just testing your faith to see if you'll trust me. And who knows, God might use even this to bring some souls to me. And in the midst of it, don't worry. My peace will be available. And it has been. And sit back and watch. See what the result might be. God's not done with you. Just because you're going through a hard time. He's just getting you ready. For the next great thing. He wants to do in your life.